When I was when I was in high school, we had this term for some people, just some people, and maybe it's dated. Maybe you guys don't even know what it means. But sometimes we would refer to some people as needy people. Just that person's needy, and I mean it. it it's kind of it's a little bit offensive, right? I mean. The, the, the literal uh, meaning of that is somebody doesn't have enough finances to kind of get by in life and, and they need help. But it kind of has this pop culture definition, someone who always wants your attention, somebody who is uh, constantly looking for affection, you know, somebody who, who needs other people. Sometimes they can be a little bit uh, annoying, a, a needy individual. And, I mean, admittedly, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of an unkind thing to say to other people, and I wouldn't suggest you saying it, but maybe I just want to ask you a question tonight. Are you a, a needy person? Are you a needy spiritual person? Because if you're a needy person, then the message I have for you tonight and the message I'll have for you this entire fall will be very helpful for you. Uh, do you struggle with foolishness? In, in your living, in your thinking, you, you, you struggle with foolishness. Do you, do you, you struggle with spiritual unfaithfulness? Like, I, I'm just not disciplined spiritually like I want to be. Do, do you struggle with sin and doubt? Maybe this morning did you struggle with sin and doubt? Doubt that's caused by your sin. Um, perhaps you are fearful of a future of following Christ. What does this mean? What will will this cost me in the future? I'm afraid. Uh, Do you see little or no spiritual fruit in your life? Uh, Are you what you could call metaphorically spiritually blind? You just don't see the world eternally. Um, Do you feel useless? Do you tonight in your heart of hearts uh, you, you call yourself a Christian, but you feel useless. A useless disciple. Is that how you feel tonight? Are you, are you a, a needy, are you a needy disciple? Are you a needy spiritual person? Are you a needy Christian? Are you, are you needy? Well, well, if that's true, then you need, very simply, you need time with Jesus. You need to spend a lot of time with Jesus. You need to see his power, his glory, his might, his love, his compassion, his sacrifice. You need to spend time with Jesus and see who he is and love him for who he is. Are you a needy Christian? In some ways, it's a bad thing, but sometimes, if you recognize that about yourself, it will revolutionize the way you read your Bible, the way you listen to sermons, the way you do everything. If you recognize something true about yourself, I am knee-deep, then Jesus is glorious. Are are you a needy Christian tonight? Then then I have the, the book for you. It's called The Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is written to needy disciples who need to see a glorious, powerful, mighty, loving, compassionate, sacrificing Savior. That's who you need to see. 
That's what you need to see. Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We're going to try to do something impossible tonight. We're going to try to kind of do this introduction to the Gospel and at the same time kind of give you guys some application. So I'm going to try to kind of push in little background material, little structure of the whole book, and, and a little bit of a, a few comments about who it's written to. The Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark um, is the shortest gospel in the New Testament, but it has, it has riches to behold. The purpose, if you're taking notes, um, here's a few things to write down. The purpose of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the Gospel of Mark presents Jesus, this is my just purpose statement, the Gospel of Mark presents Jesus as the Son and Servant of God in compelling form. Or The Gospel of Mark presents Jesus as the Son and Servant of God in compelling form to help you follow Him better. That's my definition. I'll, I'll read it one more time. The Gospel of Mark presents Jesus as the Son of God and as the Servant of God in compelling fashion or form to help you follow Him better. Are you ready to see Jesus? Then come back next week and the next week and the next week. We are going to be looking at Jesus in all of His glory. Let's read the first 13 verses of the Gospel of Mark um, I'll, I'll begin to read in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Uh, three points tonight on why you need the Gospel of Mark. Three points tonight why you want to listen to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, number one, you need Mark's personal angle. You need Mark's personal angle. You personally need the perspective that Mark brings as he writes this. There's four Gospels in the New Testament. Each of them are written by four different people from four different angles. 
Each, each talk about the same glorious person and each individual brings kind of their different uh, aspects, maybe a background they're particularly trying to write to. For example, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He, he, he fills his gospel with Jewish things. Mark is writing to probably a Roman audience, and so he doesn't really care about prophecy, fulfillment. I mean, he does, but it's not there as much. He, does, he has to explain all of this background stuff. Everybody comes with their own personal angle, and Mark writes authoritatively under the inspiration of the Spirit in a very important angle. Now, who, who was Mark, and, and why did he write? Really quick here, just a quick kind of overview background. If, if you're taking notes, this is going to be kind of just like kind of going through kind of the end pages of your, of your New Testament letters. Uh, when you read uh, through the New Testament, you find kind of an interesting history develop around this man named John Mark. Um, um, and the one basic thing you learn about Mark or John Mark is that uh, this is not the guy you'd expect to be writing uh, the Gospel of Jesus, one of the four Gospels of Jesus that we find in the New Testament. Now, maybe he has an impressive family background. Um, he, he is mentioned maybe having a family connection with Peter, possibly. His mother is mentioned in Acts 12. She apparently had this big house where the church would meet together um, and, and gather together. She was a widow because the husband's never mentioned. She apparently had a lot of money as well. He was, he was the son of a, of a widow, it appears like. And, and actually, when we recall him John Mark, that's actually not true. Um, John was his Jewish name, and Mark was his Latin or Roman name. So depending on who he was talking to, he would use this name versus uh, that name. Sometimes sometimes you see it John, sometimes you see it Mark. Um, sometimes you see it referred to as John, that is Mark. But it's never John, Mark, so just, just so you know. Um, his cousin was Barnabas, a very popular man in the in the early church. He He actually was... His name was renamed from Joseph to Barnabas because the name Barnabas means son of encouragement. So clearly he had, he had this encouraging aspect to him um, that the early church kind of started calling him Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He was also an early associate of Paul and perhaps he's the one that introduced uh, Mark to Paul. And we, we find this thing happen in Acts 13, 13. You can write this down if you're taking notes on the person of Mark, where, where Mark famously is with Paul the Apostle on a missionary journey, and something happens that is shameful. I'll read Mark 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. What was going on here? Well, when you keep reading through the book of Acts, you realize that the reason why John, Mark, left Paul was because he didn't have the heart for the hardships of following Jesus. He didn't have the heart for the hardships. His departure was spiritual. He gave up. He wanted to go back to an easier life. You see this in, in Acts 15.36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we have proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Well, because he was his cousin. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. We see a spiritual reason. Mark, Mark was, uh, weak 
spiritually. Mark was useless in some sense. Mark didn't have strength to endure trials. He left them and went back to Jerusalem, or so we pick up from Paul's um, response. So the, the conclusion of this so far on the on the person of Mark is a Mark is a pretty useless disciple. Think about that. Mark is a very useless disciple to Paul. Paul says, Barnabas, let's go on a missionary journey. Barnabas says, hey, let's bring John Mark with us. And Paul says, no, I don't want him. He is useless to me in the ministry. That's the kind of person Paul was, or Mark was. Once again, not the person you'd expect to be writing the gospel. Somebody that the Apostle Paul doesn't want around. Um, but thankfully, this isn't the end of the story for Mark. If you go on reading, particularly in the New Testament, we, we find um, a restoration happens. He ends up in Rome with Peter. Somehow, in 1 Peter 5.13, we see Mark's name show up again. Maybe he wandered into Peter at Rome. Maybe he went to Rome to find Peter. Maybe he was wandering through the streets of Jerusalem and happened to run into that old family friend, Peter. And Peter is like, what are you doing here? But we find something incredible has transformed in the person of Mark. Because in 1 Peter 5.13, it says this. Uh, Peter is concluding his letter and he says, She who is at Babylon, who likewise is chosen, sends you greeting and so does Mark, my son. And of course, he's not referring to a physical son. He's referring to a spiritual son. He, after Mark had left Paul Peter got together with Mark and said, you are my son. And matter of fact, I'm going to tell other people you are my spiritual son. Something happened. Maybe Peter encouraged him, admonished him, um, and did something. But Mark had a change of heart and turned around. And, and actually later we see Mark show up in Paul's letters again and is referred to not as useless, but useful. For example, Colossians 4.10 um, Paul starts mentioning people, and he includes Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Think about that. There has been instructions passing around about this man, John Mark, because he had a bad rap. Because people thought of John Mark and they said, there is somebody that just can't endure in the ministry. But now there is this new instruction going around saying, welcome him. He is useful. Again, he has been restored by Peter. Matter of fact, this is really sweet. 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul, this is his very last letter that we know of that he wrote. And these are his final words, so to speak. And he says this. He says to Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Uh, Kreskin has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. So there's, there's the scene that Paul is painting. Everybody is either busy serving somewhere else or they have deserted him. Here is the time where the true disciples of Christ stand up. And they, they fight the good fight of faith. And many are turning away because when, when stones start flying, when whips start landing on your back, your confession of faith becomes tested, whether you are weak or strong. And all these people are deserting him. And here he says, Luke alone is with me. And he adds this remarkable thing. This is Paul. Get Mark. 
and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me. He is useful to me for ministry. So think about this. To, to belabor the point, just to say, you need the Gospel of Mark because it is written by someone who was useless, but has become useful. He knows a secret that you desperately want to know. How can I become useful? How can I become useful? This is written by a weak disciple. That's me too. So, you need Mark's personal angle. Number two, the second reason you need Mark's gospel, you need Mark's laser focus. You need Mark's laser focus. Uh, what changed in Mark? What, what transformed him that he was entrusted with writing this gospel, maybe under the inspiration of Peter and instruction of Peter? This is what I think, this is what I think changed Mark. Peter got together with Mark and he said, you're faithless, you're useless, but let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the things I have seen and I have heard. Let me tell you, let me tell you about Jesus. And now just a little aside here, um, when you go through Mark, when you go through Mark, it is noted that Mark is a very quick gospel. You can read it. In an hour and a half. It takes you two and a half hours to read Luke. But you can read Mark in a nice, cool, easy hour and a half. Do it tonight while you're going to sleep. Preferably before. There is an economy of words that Mark uses. Uh, Mark, I like to think of it this way. Mark is a, 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 an action movie screenwriter. He's an action movie screenwriter. He moves fast. For example, it takes Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew... 65 verses to get into the wilderness with Jesus. It takes the Gospel of Luke 170 verses to get Jesus into the wilderness. How many verses does it take Mark to get Jesus into the wilderness? How many? 25? 13? 11? However you're counting it, it doesn't take very long. It takes him around 12 verses to get Jesus into the wilderness. He is writing with an incredible care and economy of words. And he, he likes moving things around. He's always using this word called immediately, which, which keeps the action moving. It is used, uh, that word immediately is used 41 times in the Gospel of Mark. Immediately this happened. Immediately this happened. Immediately this happened. Cross-reference. Um, Matthew is a lot longer, but he uses the word immediately 18 times. Luke uses it 7 times. John uses it 6 times. But Mark uses immediately 41 times. I think he's trying to get somewhere fast. It kind of gives this sense when you read the Gospel of ceaseless activity. There is actually a day that takes a whole chapter and a half to get through. A whole day of Jesus' life where Jesus is just ceaselessly doing things. And he spends... He spends very little time on background information, like, for example, Jesus just appears. John the Baptist just appears. Luke gives you this nice, elaborate background story about uh, John's father and all these other things, but to Mark, they're there. We don't need any background. They're here. Um, he's intentionally brief. As a matter of fact, he refers to his gospel as a short gospel. He just says, hey, this is just the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first verse, that's, that's what he's saying. 
So what we're saying here is, is Mark writes with an incredible economy of words, but for a great purpose. Hey, a writing tip for any of you writing papers right now. Your paper will get better if you read over it and say, how can I shorten this by one paper? Your paper will get better when you shorten things. You'll get more precise. You'll use less words. You'll clean up sentences. You'll delete unnecessary ones. You'll delete paragraphs. Maybe you'll even delete whole pages when you start thinking, how, what do I need to communicate my point? Mark is writing with a precise point in mind. What is that? I mean, he, he doesn't share all the stories he could share. He shares only select stories. And the point is, he shares these stories because he wants to, without any interruption, without any distraction, to get you to see Jesus in all of his glory. See who he is, see what he does, and see why he did what he did. Just a quick observation. Almost every single story in the Gospel of Mark has Jesus as its central character. Think about that. Every story in the Gospel of Mark, besides two, is all about Jesus. Mark is trying to get you to Jesus. He is saying, hey, come here, needy and weak Christian. Come here and have a prolonged time with Christ. You need to be with Christ. You need to see Him. You need to know who He is, what He did, and what all of this is means. That is what Mark is trying to do. He, he starts and he doesn't let you look away from Jesus. You can see that in the first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's quickly break down some of those terms really quick. Uh, the beginning we already talked about, that's probably a title of his entire gospel. It's just a beginning. It's just a, be, a beginning. The, the whole gospel you could see forming in Acts as well, but this is just a beginning, just a, a short little testimony of what Jesus did. And then he uses this word gospel there, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now many of you know that word so well that you don't even know what it means. I, I hear the gospel every single day, and for the life of me, I do not know what it actually means. It's kind of like hymn. What is a hymn? I just say it all the time. Uh, it's kind of like when I grew up in the, in the, in the Lutheran tradition, every, every week we do a confession of faith. And every once in a while I was like, whoa, I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. I'm so used to hearing these words repeated over and over and over again. What does gospel mean? Well, it, 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 in the ancient world, it, it usually had to do with news from the emperor. It had to do with like, um, news about a new royal birth, Right. Good news. It, it literally means good news. Good news about a royal birth. A new emperor to tax you and to send you off to battle. Good news, everybody. Good news. Um, uh, a great battle was won or waged. Good news, everybody. A battle has been won and your emperor is victorious. Good news. Now you have to pay more taxes to cover his uh, debts. It was often it was often from self-important people that were sending this good news. Good news. I just won. That, that's what gospel meant in uh, Roman world, in the Roman world. That's what a gospel meant. But the New Testament uses this world because word because they want to communicate something. They want to say, hey, there is real good news. This is just temporary good news. But there is eternally good news. Yeah, maybe your good news is about an emperor that was born, but he will die. Maybe your good news is about a battle that was won or fought. But you know what? That battle 
it is not permanent. We're going to probably have to fight that battle again. When the Bible uses the term good news, it is talking about eternally good news uh, that is eternally significant, eternally re- relevant. I'm just going to have this definition of what good news is. Uh, good news is life-altering, world-changing good news about who Jesus is and what he did. That's what the gospel is. It is life-altering, world-changing good news about what Jesus did and who he is. It's life-changing news to you. And then you see another word there, Jesus. This is just his human name. Uh, the Greek the Greek word for Joshua, which means uh, the Lord's salvation or Yahweh's salvation. And then you see Son of God. It's a very important word in this entire gospel, so we should talk about it really quick. It's in the very beginning here. It's down there in verse 11. Where, where the Son of God is being introduced by God, and it's at the very end, um, when Jesus is on the cross, a centurion says, surely this is the Son of God. And then you see another title there, Christ, referring to Jesus. He really stacks these terms together because he wants you to see Jesus and understand him. Christ literally means the anointed one, the Messiah. Um, if you are a Jew, this is the promised agent who will move forward with God's program, the promised one. Uh, and it's very interesting for a gospel that doesn't really include a lot of Old Testament quotes. Mark starts his whole entire gospel um, with a huge Old Testament quote because he's trying to link Jesus in with the Old Testament. He's saying, hey, this good news, this world-changing, life-altering good news about Jesus didn't just come out of nowhere. God has been planning this from the beginning. And notice, he also is quoting from Isaiah, which if you're smart, you're like, Isaiah. That's, that's, the, that's God's promised Messiah, the servant of the Lord. Matter of fact, tuck this away in the back of your head while you're studying Mark. Um, Christ is not only the Son of God, He's not only the Son of God in Mark in person and power, but He is also Isaiah's servant of the Lord in His passion and in His purpose. That Mark is trying to connect you saying, hey, this is the Son of God, but He is also the promised one, the servant of the Lord. So, uh, all, all in all, all to say, Mark is trying to get you to answer this question. Mark is trying to get you to answer this question, and this is his laser-focused question that he's trying to get you to ask. He's going to, he's going to display all of, these, all of these examples of who Jesus is before you, and he wants you to answer this question. It is the question Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say? that I am. Who do you say that I am? I know what everybody else is saying, but who do you? Uh, Anchored, Grace Bible Church, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It's it's not enough for Mark for you to just say, I believe he is the Christ. He wants you to say something more. Uh, You need Mark, you need his focus. You need to know who Jesus is, what he did. Um, Finally, number three, you need Mark's powerful purpose. It's not enough to just have Mark's laser focus. You also need Mark's powerful purpose. Remember, are you a needy disciple? Are you weak? Do you have nothing to offer spiritually to God? You need Mark's powerful purpose. There's this thing that goes on in Mark. It's where Jesus heals people, and then he says, don't tell anybody. 
I know I just changed your life, altered everything. You can now go be, be with your family again because you're no longer a leper. I don't want you to tell anybody who did this. Why? Why does Jesus do that? What is this whole secret about? Well, Mark has a powerful purpose that he is trying to um, to pursue, and it involves not telling everybody who Jesus is. You need to understand who Jesus is, but it's not enough. Once again, it's not enough to just know his title. Because once again, there were lots of people that had lots of definitions about who this Messiah would be, who a son of God was. Romans had all sorts of weird definitions about a son of God. Mark has a powerful purpose, and he's saying to you, I want you to only understand Jesus and only define Jesus by what Jesus says about himself. You cannot understand Jesus without understanding his purpose. And, and we get this sense from very early on, and we've read this. We, we read this, Mark, is, uh, Mark displays a Jesus who is on fire with purpose. It says in verse 9 of Mark 1, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Uh, why did Jesus come to be baptized? He didn't need to confess his sins. He didn't need to prepare for the Messiah um, the best explanation of this is probably through the cross-reference in Matthew. You see Jesus says, hey, I need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. John, uh, John baptized Jesus for all sorts of reasons. First off, John had to identify Jesus as the Messiah. That was his job as the messenger of the Lord, as it says in that Isaiah passage. Um, Jesus also, in being baptized, identified with you sinful people he said i am i am here with you and finally here probably the reason why jesus needed to be baptized is this was how the messiah would be anointed with the holy spirit and with power to be the messiah so that's that's a lot of things to say jesus needed to be baptized but not for the reason everybody else needed to be baptized he needed to be baptized to say i am him the one you've been waiting for is finally here and, and, and you see from now on, Jesus will do all these incredible things and nothing that Jesus does is outside of the will of God and nothing that Jesus does is outside of being filled with the Holy Spirit. He is anointed by God, filled with the Holy Spirit to do the purposes of God on earth. What is that purpose? You need to know that. Mark wants you to know what that purpose is. You see, he goes on, he says, when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So that that, that little uh, verb there that's confusing, he saw, he saw the heavens being opened, by the way, that's Jesus. Jesus is the subject there. Jesus saw this. Jesus saw the Spirit coming down on him like a dove. Jesus heard the voice, um, God's declaration to the, his beloved son. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Once again, what's going on there? Why does God need to declare this? Well, yeah, Jesus is receiving this message. John, we're told elsewhere, hears this message. But you know who God is also talking to in that message? Well, he's got a purpose. There's a reason why Jesus came to earth. And God is declaring battle to Satan and all of his workers. He's saying, here is my promised one. 
Here is that snake killer that I have promised from Genesis 3. He has come to do battle with you and to win. Give him your best shot. This is my beloved son. You know, he talked about Job in the book of Job. And he, and he said, have you seen my servant Job? Test him. And Job stood up pretty well. But God says about Jesus, this is my perfect beloved son. And we, and we see uh, Satan takes him up on his challenge. Really, it's not um, Satan's idea, though. We see the spirit in verse 12 immediately drives him into the wilderness. There's this battle of all battles, it feels like, about to be taking place. So we see kind of the, the, the purpose of Jesus' baptism is, is to, to shout out, I am going to conquer. And we see him follow this purpose in going out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. But we also see something in this temptation time. This is not the kind of champion you'd expect God to send to fight our battles. This guy is a little weak. I mean, he is full of the Spirit, full of power. He is God's beloved Son. But notice, he is tempted by Satan for 40 days. And and notice, Mark adds this little detail that no other gospel adds. He was with the wild animals. Why was he with the wild animals? Some commentators suggest a few interesting things. Well, this is him bringing the world back together. See, the Creator is finally bringing peace with the animal kingdom and the human kingdom. I don't think that's what's going on. I think Mark includes this little part about wild animals. Well, one, to encourage the Christians who maybe are facing actual, literal threats of being thrown to lions in the Colosseum, but also to show Jesus' weakness. He is in the wilderness. He hears every single night the cries of vicious beasts around him. He is in danger. He is being tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And unlike the first Adam, who had a perfect paradise with all friendly, cozy, cuddly lions and bears, Jesus has a wilderness that he is being tempted in for 40 days, not two minutes. 40 days being tempted in the wilderness with wild beasts. And look, he needs to be ministered to by angels. He is weak. And and you see some of Jesus' purpose. Yes, he came to conquer, but he also came like that servant that we hear about in Isaiah 53 to suffer. To not really stand out as this glorious champion who never sweats or bleeds or struggles, but someone who is weak like you and like me. Why? What is Jesus's? Purpose. Well, what, what, what is the powerful purpose? Quickly, quickly, and then we'll go to small group. Let me just break down the structure of the book for you. The first eight and a half chapters show you uh, Jesus' powerful person. They show you Jesus' powerful person. Chapters 1 through 8 give you story after story after story of the powerful Son of God. And they intermix little details in there like, Jesus was so tired that he fell asleep in a boat and didn't even wake up even though a storm was rocking the boat all over the place and these these, uh, veteran fishermen were freaking out saying, we're going to die. Why don't you love us anymore? He just throws things in there in in amongst the stories of the powerful Son of God. That's one through eight. 
And then, and then we see something shift in, in chapter 8 through 27 through 30. And Jesus says that question. He asks that question of his disciples. Who, who do men say that I am? But who do you say that I am? And then Peter says, you are the Christ. And, and then we see something really shift. Jesus goes from kind of aimlessly, apparently, aimlessly walking around Galilee and Judea, healing people. He shifts. As soon as Peter says that in chapter 8, verse 27, we, we see focus happen. For example, if you turn over to chapter 8, chapter 8, just, just to, just to show you this, um, chapter 8, verse 27, um, it says this, on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? So remember that, on the way. Um, chapter 9, verse 34. But they kept silent, for on the way, they had been arguing one another. On the way. And then look over at chapter 10, uh, verse 17. You see, and he was setting out on his journey. On his journey. And then 10, verse 32. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem. And then in the the, the, the end of chapter 10, verse 52, um, this blind man follows him on the way. Chapter 11, verse 8, on the road. What is he saying? Jesus goes from kind of wandering around, just healing, talking to his disciples, to being focused. He is on a journey. He is on a mission. Where is Jesus going? What is his powerful purpose? Why did this Son of God, who is weak and yet all-powerful, come to this world? You see him kind of intermingle a few other things in this section 8 through 10. And he says three times, he, he, he repeats this basic warning that the Son of Man is going to suffer and re- be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and be killed in Jerusalem, where we're going. And after three days, rise again. He says that three times in this middle section of the book. So you see Jesus goes from from kind of just wandering around, showing his glory, to being focused, to having a purpose. I am going to Jerusalem to be rejected and die. And then in the final eight chapters, because that happens right in the middle of the gospel, in the final eight chapters of Mark, you see Jesus' powerful purpose. You see him as the suffering servant. You see him be rejected in, Jer- in Jerusalem, and you see him suffer and die, and you see him rise again. Now, once again, this is familiar to you. This is familiar to you, but let me tell you, if you want to read the Gospels like never before, stop expecting things. Stop saying, I know what happens next, then he goes into the wilderness. Start reading it with fresh eyes. Start reading the gospel as a needful person who is weak. Because that's, that's who this gospel was meant to be written to. You need Mark's personal angle. You need Mark's laser focus. You need Mark's powerful purpose. This is not, this is not a gospel. And this is the glorious good news. This is not the gospel about a king who came to be served. This is not a gospel about someone who came to be served. Because if that's what this gospel was about, Jesus would have gotten rid of his terrible, stupid, ignorant, blind disciples a long time ago. And he would not have patience with you. No, this is a gospel. This is a life-transforming, world-changing message about the Son of God who gives his life. He came in 
frail humanity, weakened flesh to give his life, it says, as a ransom for you. And that is where power for the Christian life is found. Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus says his powerful purpose, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When you understand who Jesus is, and and you understand what he came to do, it will transform your life. It will transform your life. So you need Mark's gospel. You need it. Because it is exactly the kind of Jesus a spiritually needy person like you desperately needs this fall. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this evening. We're thankful for this time in small group. I pray that it would be helpful. I pray that we'd be honest and have integrity in our answers. And I, and I pray now that you would continue to fill our minds with love for you. I pray this in your name. Amen.